Hello and welcome to the season finale of Rightfully So. Uh, we are 12, 12 episodes in, um, and it's been a really interesting first season as we sort of figure out what this podcast is for, for us as the co-hosts and collaborators as we figure out where it fits with you, our listener. Um, and we thought it would be kind of fun uh, for, the, for the season finale to kind of put into practice some of the things that we've been talking about all the semester and do a little bit of rhetoric in action. And we've chosen as our subject for our rhetoric in action, uh, the film Wreck-It Ralph, because uh, who doesn't love a good Disney film? And we thought we'd go ahead and, and talk about Wreck-It Ralph as if we were writing an academic paper about it, right? We're going to present some, some theses, um, some, some hypotheses. Uh, we're going to talk about how we would sort of defend those, like what are the observations that we've made about the film that sort of um, support that conclusion as a way of sort of demonstrating how, how rhetoric can function in a discussion. And then that's a fairly easy thing to translate to the paper. It's really just about changing the, the, the formality of your language once you get it into writing, right? To make sure it's appropriate for any audience. So let's talk about Wreck-It Ralph. Um, I have a couple of theories. I know Jeanette has a couple of theories about the characters. Uh, so I think before I start rambling on with all of my highfalutin ideas, I'd open open up the discussion for um, for Karen Jeanette to share um, their perspective on the film. Okay, I'll go first. I mean, literally anybody. <laughs> Was that the moment in the classroom where you ask a question and nobody's raising their hands? So you try and rephrase. Um, so so one thing I will say is that my um, one of the reasons why I love Wreck-It Ralph so much and I love the whole concept of the story is that it's something I've been actually fascinated with for quite a while. Um, I feel like a lot of films, especially Disney films, kind of kids films in particular, have really within the last maybe 20, 30 30 years or so, um, really explored not just like the anti-hero, but actually like telling a villain's story. Um, and so one of the things I loved about Wreck-It Ralph was that it was that approach of here's a villain in his own video game, and yet we're going to tell kind of his side. And of course, the way that they set it up in the beginning is not quite looking at him as a villain. Like as you watch it, you can tell right away that he's gonna be the good guy, right? Um, but it's the whole idea of kind of giving you multi-dimensional characters um, that are much more interesting to kind of, you know, portray and kind of showing how it's a matter of perspective when you take a look at them. Um, because one thing I kind of explore a lot in my classes, I've had this theme of outlaws before and that kind of a thing. So it's kind of fun to connect, um, you know, these characters that are shunned by some, you know, for certain reasons, and then how they still kind of are redeemable to that certain extent. And I feel like that's an important story for kids to see because I grew up in the era of, you know, Lion King, Little Mermaid. We had very kind of one-dimensional villains that just wanted power. I mean, Scar just wanted power. Ursula just wanted power. You know, everybody just wants power. Um, but then you get to characters who, you know, it's not quite clear, especially in the very beginning, it's not quite clear who that villain really is. You know, even Felix at first, you know, he's supposed to be the direct contrast to Ralph, but yet he's an okay guy. He's just playing his role. He's not mean or anything. You know, he's not intending this. He's like, this is just the game we play. Um, and so I think the villain, the actual villain doesn't even reveal himself until way, way further later once we meet Vanellope and everything like that. So it's kind of fun to see um, 
kind of more ambiguity, um, especially when it comes to who the protagonist is, and of course what the what the antagonist might be of that of that story. Yeah, I was talking with Bill earlier about um, Badenon, so that the the, um, <laughs> the equivalent for Alanon or AA, basically where. Um, it bookends the movie where there's a scene in the towards the beginning and then there's a scene at the end where um, Ralph is there with all the other bad guys in quotes air quotes here um, and the affirmation I looked it up because it was just so funny I'm bad and that's good I will never be good and that's not bad there's no one I'd rather be than me um, and so it's one of those things where you kind of you, you he's the bad guy, but he's in recovery. <laughs> so you kind of are like, he's okay. I mean, he's trying, right? Like it's, oh, you know, and it's, 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 it, so I think that's part of why we know, you know, he's not, he's not really bad, even though he's saying that and they have that affirmation. Um, and it, that's when we're first introduced to this idea of going turbo, right? Like, <laughs> so in the beginning, it's, it's like, wait, what does that mean? Like, is that a euphemism or something? But um, it's pretty literal, right? Like, it's the cautionary tale of like, the one that couldn't quite get it together, you know, was not successful in recovery. So. Yeah, it's a great point how uh, going turbo is like, what happens when you don't accept your social role right um hey your role is to be this bad a character but don't let that role define you and it's such an interesting way of looking at how these characters have become um increasingly nuanced because carrie you're right like i i grew up on the same generation of of disney retelling old fairy tales and in in many of those fairy tales the villains are one-dimensional they want power they want to stop the young princess they want to disrupt power um, and I had a theory about why the evil witches are always evil in these Disney films. Uh, and that's because they're old women, no longer of childbearing years, who want to usurp the position of the young woman of childbearing years. That upends society's values. That's not okay. Therefore, they're the evil hacks. Anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> uh, I, th I ended up taking, a, I think, ultimately a similar tact to what Jeanette was saying about the villain on and the that we have this nuanced villain who isn't really a, a villain in that we see sort of two identities at work we see what I would call the objective identity where that is who is Ralph in the eyes of the the people that populate the video game world um, from the eyes of the video game player who perceive of Ralph as quote an object right um, and he's the bad guy and they really don't care what his motivations are like the video game, like in the opening credits, does set up a little bit of like, hey, they moved his stump that he was living in to build that house. And so like there's this, you know, imminent domain conflict that's going on, um, you know, getting kicked off to the reservation or what have you. So there's this whole grand appropriation problem, which he should probably rebel against. Uh, I'm, I'm on his side with this one. Um, but beyond that, like he doesn't have any real motivation. He just wants to knock the house down, right? Um, and that creates a point of conflict for Felix to come in and resolve with his magic hammer. Um, so that's the objective identity. How is Ralph perceived? But then there's the subjective identity, which is how does Ralph see himself? And he's obviously struggling with that, right? Because he's going to these Villanon meetings and he's obviously struggling with the idea of, I don't feel like a bad guy. I feel like I was wronged a little bit. And he's like, I mean, Felix isn't a bad guy. I mean, he got this magic hammer and whatever and he fixes stuff, but I mean, he's an all right dude. You know, it just, you know, it's kind of a bummer. I just have these bricks and, it's, you know, I, I want a house. It'd be cool. 
Um, and, and so, so part of the movie is, is Ralph, I feel like trying to reconcile those two identities and truly accept that he's not a bad guy. Right. I feel like the court of public opinion is weighing heavily on him and it isn't until he meets Vanellope that he, he, he sees that it's possible to resist that outside influence to, to not let others define who he is for himself. Um, and then I also think there's a little bit of a story about class and privilege in there, but uh, I don't want to, you know, bogart this whole discussion with all of my theories, uh, scattered thoughts. So um, what about Vanellope? Like we've, we've talked a little bit about Ralph and, and the sort of villain side of things and the, the, how interesting it is to have a more nuanced quote villain or bad guy, one who's almost empathetic or sympathetic really. But what about our, our heroine, uh, young Vanellope? That's another reason why I love it, because I feel like we have the the bonding of the two characters really happens because they're both essentially outcasts in their own stories. Right. Um, so, of course, she's got her glitch and all the other characters are, you know, don't don't be that one, you know, or don't have her because she's going to ruin it and everything like that. So it's it's kind of even in a way, you know, kind of how he was seeking some sort of affirmation from the group that he would go, you know, see where they had that affirmation, you know, <laughs> and then and then he would even do that, you know, or kind of seeking that approval from from Vanilla in a way like they both kind of reaffirm each other by just existing together and kind of bonding and making that friendship they realize you know that that just like you know they kind of are looking outside of their own scopes right they're looking outside of their own games and so they're kind of realizing that in every game there's kind of this weirdness of that tension of someone's supposed to be the villain but yet are they really, you know, so it's kind of fun to see that pairing, which I think in that camaraderie, they kind of um, get that affirmation that they genuinely really need. Yeah, for sure. Um, they, they recontextualize each other's um, situation, right? Like Ralph has only known like his game and then and then what experience he's had in his, his support group meetings, but Vanellope doesn't have any of that history with him. She just sees him for who he he is, essentially. And he doesn't act like a bad guy. He acts selfishly and he's in emotionally immature, like most men are, for sure. Um, that's not necessarily a, a complete failing of character. Um, but but she doesn't judge him on that, right? She just kind of like teases him and laughs at him, but never malicious. I never get the impression that's malicious, right? Um, she's that's just you tease, right? Kids tease. Um and then he he doesn't have all this history with her seeing her as a glitch either, right? So since neither one of them has this shared history until they meet, they don't bring that sort of um, that baggage, right? Those objective identities don't come into play. They get to see each other for who the other person really is. And that's really refreshing, right? And I think that's why they bond so quickly is there's a space where they get to be themselves without judgment. And I feel like it's a really important lesson. I mean, the number of movies that I've seen that have the same story to go like way back in the deep vault of, of the pantheon of outcast movies, like Revenge of the Nerds, right? Like, <laughs> which no one listening to this podcast is going to be old enough to know what that is, but Google it. That's a story of a bunch of nerdy white guys getting beat up by, you know, the, the frat house bullies and being the social outcast and being the social pariahs because all they are is smart and goofy and they're not cool and they don't have expensive cars and, and cute cheerleader girlfriends but in the end they win right um because of their positive outlook because their willingness to remain true to who they are because of their insistence that they be accepted for who they are right <laughs> which i think is interesting about vanellope's character um she insists to be accepted as who she is right 
um, despite everyone sort of of um, marginalizing her because of her glitch, she's like, ah, I'm not a glitch. It's just it's the way I'm programmed. It's who I am. It's I mean, I obviously have to be this way because why else would I be this way? Um, and her absolute insistence that there's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, which is really refreshing to see. When you had mentioned class two, I was thinking about their, the two are both contrasting to each other physically. Like, so you have Ralph who is this, you know, like he's, when he walks through the depot or whatever in between games, like people are like, oh, you know, like, or other beings, you know, can see he's scary. And then there's a whole comical scene where he ends up in the candy and he's like this giant candy monster, you know, like, so it's like, he's, he's constantly sort of, you know, it's like, it's about his size. And then in contrast, she's tiny, she's a child, you know, there's a lot of references to her childlike nature, her voice is very high, you know, and so there's that contrast, but at the same time, they both live at the the dump basically and he's like oh you live here like i totally get this <laughs> like this is like home you know and so it's kind of interesting how they do set them up to be understanding for each other you know like and I, I, so that's always been interesting to me about like their the the contrast in their physical appearance and yet they can under they can understand each other just based on that um and then the the trash thing it's like yeah lower class right you know and then suddenly by the end when all is righted she's royalty so <laughs> there's that sort of like rapid cinderella um you know class class changing you know like class upward mobility um happening with her and i love her absolute denial of that like she takes that moment and she's like what nah like back to the hoodie and the tie the leggings right like solid you know feminist presentation i refuse to be defined by these outmoded standards she's like i was thinking you know a functional democracy instead of you know a monarchy and i'm like wow like disney just dropping some politics right here in the third act like good for you like she's like we tried having a king turned it out he was not like that wasn't the right choice so you know everybody gets to contribute it's all it's all good and you're right like um Ralph is definitely a physically imposing, like lumbering figure. He's got those massive hands. And I think Vanelpi even comments on it when she first meets him. He's like, what's up with those hands or something like that? Just these great big, like huge gorilla mitts. Um, and, and there's a certain amount of that abjection in his, in, in his proportions, right? So like fix, like fix it Felix, like he's small and, and better proportioned and conventionally good looking in the world of 8-bit video game graphics uh, compared to, to Ralph. Um, and he's got the golden hammer and there's all this sort of um, subtextual privilege to it, <laughs> which could probably be a whole nother discussion about getting, you know, born five feet from the finish line. I mean, he's got a magic hammer from his dad. <laughs> like, <laughs> how's that fair? <laughs> like, you go, Ralph, you tell him. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Um, so we're, we're coming up on the end of our 20 minutes. So, and, and I feel like this is one of those conversations that could go on for an hour as any good discussion about film or television or books can go. Um, but do you have any sort of like takeaways for our listeners or, or, or calls for here's something else to consider since we didn't have time to talk about it in detail? 
Um, I will say, because I feel like, I mean, I, I love these kind of discussions because I feel like they're a good chance for us to just kind of show how even just the conversations start so many awesome ideas and allow for that space to us, for us to brainstorm. And it's all usually based on just our initial reactions to the story itself. So when it comes to creating your own analysis and trying to find that argument or just kind of trying to do a deep dive on, you know, something and, and finding your voice, it's a matter of just saying, how did I react to this? Why did I react the way that I reacted? Right. And so it's a matter of saying, why do I love Ralph so much? And Vanellope, you know, why are they such awesome friends? And why do I cry at the thought of them not being able to be friends? <laughs> Speaking from not personal experience at all with that, but, <laughs> but just ask yourself those questions, why you reacted that way. That's very true, right? Like, so it's almost like the beginning is like, what what struck you, right? Like what scene, what character, um, what is it that stood out to you or that you could recognize in your own life, right? Like, um, and so that tends to be what we, you know, a, a really great fertile starting ground. One thing I did think about, um, and I sort of found this accidentally, but the second movie, doesn't have an antagonist. And so it's it's interesting because that's the contrast, but I just remember that people didn't really like the second one as much, I think. And I think that's part of it is that it wasn't as clear, you know, what 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 they're responding to. And so it was sort of aimless. So like in terms of, we can look at it in terms of story structure too. Like, so our discussion is just like scratching the surface of like where, where we're seeing on the surface, but like we could look at it from a feminist perspective. We could look at it from, you know, um, the story structure, the, narr the narrative, you know, underpinnings, you know, like, so there, there's a lot, of, there's, there's so many places we could have gone. <laughs> you know, I feel like the, I feel like the second movie does, ha does have an antagonist, but it's Ralph. And just like the first movie, you don't know that until the third act. And, and, and it's revealed when Ralph becomes the virus in the third act, right? It's like your neediness, your desire to be defined by your relationship to Vanellope is unhealthy, man. And this is what happens when you don't get help. <laughs> and that's the thing Therapy. too. It's, it's not even Ralph himself. It's a flaw of his, which is so, I mean, that's such a great, fantastic, ancient, classic storytelling technique to have a one part of that character being the antagonist, not themselves as a whole, right? So that's another reason why I love like Ralph. It takes us back to kind of that classic idea of that flaw that that character has turns out to be the bad thing um, that they that's, yes right <laughs> it goes all the way back to the greeks i mean a classic greek storytelling right like every hero has that the, the the no kidding fatal flaw right the the literal achilles heel um you know and if you wonder where all those tropes come from there you have it like the greeks got there first um yeah, so I, I guess for my final final takeaway is, as you can see, these conversations can can be like ongoing and never ending. And I just want to remind the listener that we already had a podcast kind of talking about this a little more in depth about the value of conversation as a creative tool, as a brainstorming tool. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go back, listen to that one. Uh, we have a whole conversation about sitting down and having a conversation like this. When you when you get an essay prompt, meet with a tutor, meet hang out with a friend, meet with your instructor and just have sort of a casual conversation about the topic and what interests you and in, in see what comes up. Because uh, as, as Carrie notably, notably pointed out, the reader response criticism is such a common place to start. Um, regardless of what your thesis ends up being, 
more often than not, your first interaction with a text and your first criticism of a text is always going to be in regards to your initial reaction to it. I always tell students, if you read something and the first thing you think is, I hate it, there's your starting point, right? Start asking the questions. And, and granted, that's probably a gross oversimplification. It's hard to do the metacognitive work sometimes to understand why you hate it. But that's where the conversation comes in, explaining to somebody why you hated it. Well, you know, doesn't have a protagonist, doesn't have an antagonist. It's just, you know, Ralph whining for 97 minutes. Should we also, <laughs> should we also mention that it sometimes takes time, takes time. to, <laughs> to find out why you might've hated it or why you <laughs> liked it. I mean, those conversations, they do take time. So there's that too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if, if if the listeners haven't picked up on the theme yet, I feel like eight of our 11 podcasts mentioned it, it takes a minute. Uh, it's writing and writing well is is a time consuming endeavor, but ultimately can be rewarding. And, and I think that might be a great place to sign off for this episode. Um, this is the season finale. We're going to take a break for winter break so that, um, you know, we can grade papers, <laughs> rest, recuperate. Um, but we'll be back in the spring um, and we'll have more discussions about writing and and um, some of the challenges that we face as first year writers and how to overcome some of those obstacles. So uh, for the listener, instead of saying go out and write something, I'm going to say go out and enjoy your holiday break, rest and recover. And hopefully we'll see you all in the spring.